Would you turn back with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9? And I'd like to make uh, two statements before we look at this passage of Scripture. God is God, and God is good. God is God. He is who he is. Uh, any mistaken notions you and I may have with regard to him uh, makes no difference with regard to who he is. He is who he is. He has no limitations. He never acts contrary to his attributes, but his power is such that whatever he wills, he has. God is God. And God is good. God is good all the time. Every one of his attributes are good. And that includes his wrath. His wrath is a good wrath because God is good. God is God and God is good. And I don't think that that is more clearly brought forth in the scriptures anywhere than in Romans chapter 9. I've entitled this message Romans 9. It has been called the most controversial chapter in the Bible. It may be that you're not familiar with its contents, but I hope after this message you will be. How do we reply to it being the most controversial chapter in the Bible? Well, we reply the same way Paul replied in 1 Timothy 3.16. He said, without controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness. And we reply the same way, without controversy. <laughs> Great is the glorious truth with regard to God declared in Romans chapter 9. No controversy here. Many have dismissed Romans chapter 9 as hard to be understood. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Um, I remember uh, Henry Mahan speaking of reading this chapter without making a comment on it, just reading it. And somebody stood up and said, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> That's how unmistakably clear it is. No one can use the excuse. It's just not too hard to understand. It's easy to understand. Now, you might not be able to receive it, but it's easy to understand what's being said in Romans chapter 9. I've heard people say it's making some kind of vague application to Old Testament Israel and it doesn't have any application for us. That's foolishness. Romans chapter 9. I would like to preach this message in the proper spirit in which I should preach it. I pray that I will be enabled to do so. 
I pray that you will pray for me that I will be enabled to do so and that the Lord might speak to us from Romans chapter 9. Now, we're going to look at the whole chapter. I've never done that before. And I'll keep it in the allotted time, uh, but, uh, so don't be worried. Uh, but let's look at this chapter together. Now, we begin in verse 1. Paul is speaking, and he says, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Now, do you hear that? Great heaviness. And non-stop sorrow. This is always pressing upon me. Verse 3, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ. For my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This chapter begins with Paul's desire for the salvation of those he calls my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And I hope you and I have that desire for the salvation of all of our brethren, sons of Adam, our brethren. What he said in chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Paul actually says, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ, cut off if they would be saved. I don't even know what to say about that. The enemies of free grace say that a belief in what Romans 9 teaches will create indifference toward the salvation of men and apathy and fatalism. No desire for missions, no desire to spread the gospel. Why, if you believe what verse 11 says, that the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand... If you believe that, it will kill any desire to see other men saved. That is a lie fabricated by the father of lies. It's never had that effect on anybody who believed it. And Paul demonstrates that with this sobering statement to begin this chapter. I could wish that I would be damned if they would be saved. Now he describes these people in verse 4, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption. He's talking about national Israel, the Jews. 
They have the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises. Whose are the fathers of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came. Christ came as a Jew. And he identifies the Christ who is over all. God. Blessed forever. Amen. That's who Jesus Christ is. He is over all. God. Blessed forever. Amen. Now Paul is dealing with his angst over his brethren who reject Christ. And he says in verse 6, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. As I mourn over the unbelief of these people, it's not as though God's word has failed or God's purpose is frustrated. I'm dealing with mine angst, yes, but God's purpose is being done. It's not as though the word of God has taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Just because someone is a child of Abraham, that doesn't make them true Israel. You see, true Israel is the elect of God. True Israel is every believer. That's the true Jew. Just because you're a national Israelite, doesn't make you a true Jew. Neither, verse 7, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. What about Ishmael? Abraham was his father. Yet when God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. He said, take now your son, your only son. Ishmael is never acknowledged by God as a son. Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him up as a burnt offering to me on the mount that I shall show thee. Why is Ishmael not regarded as son? Well, you can read the story in Genesis chapter 16, and Paul uh, uses this to illustrate what he's saying with regard to salvation by works and salvation by grace and the difference in Galatians chapter 4. Here's what took place. God promised Abraham a son through Sarah. Years have gone by, it still hadn't taken place. Sarah comes up with an ingenious idea. Obviously, God's promise is not going to take place unless we do our part. God's promise will fall to the ground unless we do not help him make it come to pass. Obviously, I'm not going to have a child. Here's Hagar. Hagar, a young woman able to bear children. Go into her, and through her 
we will have this promised seed. Abraham goes into her and they have Ishmael. And Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4, this is representative of salvation by works. This is law. If salvation is dependent upon me to do anything before I can be saved, that is salvation by works. That is salvation by law. You can't be saved under that scheme. Verse 8, that is, they which are children of the flesh. And that's what Ishmael was. There was nothing supernatural about his birth. These are not the children of God. This is man doing his part, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. You see, Isaac is supernaturally born, the child of God's promise, and only they are counted for the seed. Verse 9, for this is the word of promise. At this time will I come. This is God speaking. And Sarah shall have a son, just as I determined, just as I promised. Verse 10, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. Now, I have been talking about Ishmael and Isaac who had same father, but different mothers. Now I'm going to talk about somebody who had the same father and the same mother, twins out of the same womb. Verse 11, for the children, Jacob and Esau, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. They were not yet born. They had no good works to recommend them. They had no bad works to disqualify them. They weren't born. They are given to illustrate to us God's purpose. God is a God of purpose. Somebody may think, but didn't both these boys have a chance? Salvation is not by chance. Salvation is by the purpose of God. He saved us. He called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Now here's God's 
purpose. That salvation might not be contingent upon, dependent upon, predicated upon human works. This is God's purpose. That salvation has nothing to do with anything that you do. What's that say to you? What do you think of that? If you're saved, it has nothing to do with anything that you have ever done. What do you think of that? Here's God's purpose. It's going to stand. Not of works. But of him that calleth. I love the scripture. He saved us and he called us. What came first? He saved us. Then he called us with the call of irresistible and invincible grace. If you belong to God, he's going to have you. Verse 12, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. Now that is reverse as to what usually takes place. The younger serves the elder. I want to read what he's quoting from in Genesis chapter 25, verse 20. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanaram, the sister to Laban, the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him and Rebekah, his wife, conceived And the children, Jacob and Esau, struggled together within her. And she said, if if it be so, why am I thus? She did not yet recognize that she had twins. And she went to inquire of the Lord. There was a struggle going on within her womb. And the Lord said unto her, two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall. Serve the younger. Back to our text in Romans chapter 9. He's been speaking from the book of Genesis. Now he goes to the prophets. And this is a quotation from the book of Malachi. Verse 13. As it is written. That's all that counts. This is not some denominational distinctive this is not some preacher's opinion as it is written this is God speaking Jacob have I loved and Esau Have I hated? That is God speaking. 
This, by itself, makes the teaching that God loves all men a lie. God said, Esau have I hated. Jacob I have loved. Esau have I hated. God did not love Esau. Now what about this man Esau? He didn't think his relationship with God was worth a bowl of soup. And he was quite happy to trade the birthright for a bowl of soup. He got hungry. I'm hungry right now. Am I going to trade my relationship with God for breakfast? No. Esau did. He saw no beauty in his relationship with God. He saw no beauty in God. I mean, the Christ would have come through him and he traded that away for a bowl of soup. He didn't care a bit about God. Scripture says God hated him. And remember, his hatred is not like my hatred and your hatred. Our hatred's sinful. God's hatred is a perfect, holy, righteous Somebody once said to Charles Spurgeon, I have a hard time with Romans 9, 13. He said, so do I. I just can't believe that God loved Jacob. What grace. What mercy. I can understand him hating me, so I can understand God hating me. What I'm amazed by is his love for that scoundrel, Jacob. You know why God loves? Because he loves. Why would he love me? Because he does. Because that's his glorious character. God is love. Not here's love and God fits the bill. No, God is love. Jacob have I loved. Now Paul anticipates the objection. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is God unfair in loving Jacob and hating Esau? I love Paul's answer. God forbid. That such a blasphemous thought would even rise in our mind. God forbid. Four, verse 15. He saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, this was his answer. To Moses, when Moses said, show me your glory. This was the third part of that answer. First, I'll make all my goodness pass before thee. God's good. Second, I'll proclaim my name before thee. That's his attributes. 
And thirdly, I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Now, part of the reason of him saying that is Moses said, if you're not going to save this bunch, blot me out of the book. That's what he said in Exodus 32 and very similar to what Paul said in Romans chapter 9. He desired their salvation so much. He said, if you won't have mercy on them, just blot me out of the book you're writing. And the Lord says, you don't tell me what to do. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Don't ever think that you or I can tell the Lord what to do. I think of what the Lord said to his mom, woman, what have I to do with thee? You don't tell me what to do. You don't tell me what to do. Don't ever tell God what he ought to do. Whatever he does is right, whether you see it or not, whether you understand it or not. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Aren't you thankful he has mercy? Listen, his mercy saves. We were on the road to hell unless he said, I'll have mercy. Thank God for his mercy and his grace. He delights in saving sinners. This doesn't not keep anybody out. It brings people in. Nobody be brought in if it wasn't for this. I'll have mercy. I will have grace. So then, verse 16, here's what we can conclude from this. It's not of him that willeth. Don't you believe in free will? No. No. It's not of him that willeth. Nor of him that runneth. This, well, he's trying so hard. Doesn't have anything to do with it. But of God that showeth mercy. Oh, the mercy of God. Verse 17, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh. You remember Pharaoh? He's that man that said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I love to think of what Moses must have been thinking at that point. <laughs> You're going to find out. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Remember, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. He actively hardened Pharaoh's heart. Therefore, verse 18. This is unmistakable. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy. And whom he will, he hardeneth. Now understand this. If God hardens my heart and sends me to hell, just and holy is his name. And the same is true with regard to you. God is holy. Pharaoh is in his hand. He said, I raise you up that I might show my power in you. And that my name 
might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardens. There are people in this room that he will have mercy toward. And if you or I end up not being saved, we're people he hardened as an act of his justice. Verse 19, thou wilt say unto me, Paul knew exactly what we'd be thinking. Thou wilt say unto me, why does he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Paul anticipates man's objection. If he hardens a man's heart, how can God hold that man responsible for his sin if God hardened him? That doesn't seem right. God's the one who hardened his heart, so how can he hold him responsible for that sin? Verse 20. Nay, but oh man, who do you think you are? Who are you to reply against God? Do you think yourself to be God's moral superior? That you can argue against what he says and disagree with it and disapprove of it? Who do you think you are? Do you really believe that you have the right with regard to whatever God does to say, I think this is wrong? He's God. You're a sinful man. Now, this is the third time in Romans, that he uses the term, O man. So when he says, O man, who are you, O man? He's talking about everybody, me and you, O man. Look in Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man. Whosoever thou art the judges, for wherein thou judgest another, you condemn yourself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. Anything you judge somebody for is an act. Anything I judge somebody for is an act of hypocrisy because God says I'm doing the same thing I'm judging them for. Is that true? Sure is. Look in verse 3. And thinkest thou, O man... That judges them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? O oh, man. O oh, man. Who are you to reply against God? What an act, base act of hypocrisy for me or you to reply against God. You know, people say, you know, if I, if I was God, I'd save everybody. If you were God, nobody would be saved. That's the, that's the thing. If somebody could cross you once, maybe you'd forgive them twice, hundred times. That's it. But God's long-suffering and gracious. Thank God for who God is. Back to Romans 9. Nay, but, O man, who are you that repliest against God? Shall the thing form say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter 
power over the clay of the same lump. Now picture in your mind the potter with the potter's wheel. He makes a vessel unto honor. He makes a garbage can with the rest of what he makes. Are you going to say you can't do that? You have no right. You have no right to even think that. God's God. I'm not. Everything God does is glorious because of who he is. And by his grace, we bow. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he hath afore prepared unto glory? even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now, we read here of vessels of wrath, fitted destruction, vessels of mercy. Somebody says, do you believe in double predestination? If by that you mean some are predestinated and some are not, yes, I do. I do. But understand this, a man that's a vessel of wrath isn't sent to hell because God determined to send him to hell. He's sent to hell because of his sin, because of his wickedness. And if a man's saved, it's because God determined for him to be saved. Predestination is unto salvation. Now it's true, not everybody's predestinated. Uh, there are some people called the reprobate, living left to themselves. Scripture teaches that. I'm not giving something that I'm uh, interpreting. It's plain from the Scripture. Ungodly men ordained to this condemnation, Scripture says in the book of Jude. I don't understand all the implications of this. Of course I don't. But I know this. God's God and he predestinated some and he passed by others as an act of his justice. Uh, do you believe in pre double predestination? If that's what you mean by that, yes, I do. <laughs> If you mean, if I, do you believe that there are people who want to be saved, but they can't because they're not predestinated? Don't believe that a second. Don't believe that a second. There's mercy for anybody who comes to Christ. Thank God for that. Verse 25. As he saith also in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people. And her beloved which was not my beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said, you're not my people. There shall they be called the children of the living God. I'm looking at some people in some places right now. A place where you were not his people. Now he says, you're my beloved. What a place. I want to be in that place, don't you? Verse 26 or verse 27. Isaiah also cried concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. Hold your finger there and turn to Romans chapter 11, just a, chap, a page over. Verse 5, even so, then at this time also there is a remnant, a small number, according to 
the election of grace. And if by grace, it's no more works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it's no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. Verse 28 of Romans chapter 9. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. The Lord will carry out this sentence on the earth quickly and with finality. And that finality is heard in these words. It is finished. As Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. Now, do you have any idea of what Sodom and Gomorrah is? Scripture says they were exceedingly sinful before the Lord. And you know the Lord destroyed that place. Fire and brimstone came down from heaven and destroyed them. And Isaiah said, except the Lord made a difference with us, we are them. No difference. No difference. Verse 30, what shall we say then? What are we going to conclude from all of this? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, they didn't care about God, they didn't care about righteousness. What about them? They attained righteousness. <laughs> Even the righteousness which is of faith. The Gentiles had no interest in righteousness, yet they have attained to it, even the righteousness of faith. You see, there's the righteousness of works. And the scripture tells us our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And there's the righteousness of faith. That righteousness that comes from looking to Christ as your righteousness before God. But Israel, verse 31 which followed after the law of righteousness. They sought to keep the law, to gain God's acceptance. There's a problem, though. They didn't keep it. They didn't keep it. Not once. And what's it say about them? While they followed after the law of righteousness, they've not attained to the law of righteousness. How come? Why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. Turn back, look across the page to Romans 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness. And going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. If you believe the gospel, he's the end of the law of righteousness for you. Verse 32, wherefore, why? Why is it that they did not attain to the law of righteousness because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it's written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a 
rock of offense. You see, the natural man is offended with what's just been said. You mean to tell me that I am so evil that the only way I can be saved is by what this passage says? That I have nothing. That I have no control. I have nothing to recommend me to God. I'm in the hands of a sovereign God who can save me or damn me. I'm offended by that. I'm offended by that God. I don't believe that. I know. If you're an unbeliever, I wouldn't expect anything any different. I love the last phrase, whosoever. What I love about whosoever is I'm one of them. I'm a whosoever. Are you elect? Well, I hope so. Are you whosoever? Yes. Yeah, I... I that's me. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. You're not ashamed of this message. You're not ashamed of the gospel. And you won't be put to shame because believing on him, to him that worketh not but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith, is counted for righteousness. Now the call for you and me right now, believe the gospel. You will not be ashamed or put to shame. Let's pray. Lord, how we thank you for your word. How we thank you for the clearness of how you save sinners by Christ. And Lord, deliver us from being of that number that find your gospel a stumbling block and offensive. Enable us to be of that number whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. In his name we pray.